This passage this morning is about another missionary named Paul. And so I'd like to begin by reading the text, uh, beginning in chapter 18 and verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. Father, we pray as we study your word this morning, and this particular passage on this particular day, this is a total divine appointment. God, I don't know exactly what you're going to do, but I know that you're going to work. And we're asking that you would have complete freedom to change us and to work in us, to transform us, Lord. It's like Christmas this morning. What will you do? How will we respond? God, we're asking that you would give us all that you want and that we would receive it and that we would be blessed and changed and drawn close and encouraged and lifted up and motivated, exhorted and blessed. And so, Father, take this time and maximize it for your pleasure and our benefit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. The last time we were talking about Paul, we had him in Athens. And you remember that Athens was kind of the intellectual center of the world at that time. And now we find him going into another city in Corinth. This wasn't the intellectual center of the, of the world. This was the immoral, sexual, perverted center of the universe. And in just a short span of time, he's gone from one extreme of the intellectual to the immoral, and he's really touching on the, on the two extremes of the things that keep people from Jesus Christ, intellectual pride and sensual desires. Those two things cause people's hearts to turn away from the living God. And so Paul is just, he's, he's right in the thick of very, very challenging ministry. One of the things that I 
I've always admired about Paul is his zeal. You know, the guy just seems like the Energizer Bunny. You just cannot knock this guy down. He just keeps popping up. He gets beaten. He's back. You know, he gets stoned. He's back. He's shipwrecked. He's back. You know, the guy just will not stop. And sometimes, if you're like me, I've had the impression of Paul that he's just different than I am. That he's on a, he's on a different playing field somehow. The guy is just so tenacious and so persevering and so courageous and so physically able to handle pain that I'm just, I just don't know if I can relate to the guy. However, in this text, we have one of the clearest pictures of the challenges that he had because Paul is not any different than we are. He had uncertainty, and we're going to talk about that. He suffered loneliness. He had financial stress. He had fear. He faced opposition. He was falsely accused. He was brought before a court of law where the, if he had been given a guilty verdict, he would have been put to death. The man was human. And as we go through this text this morning, I'm, I'm praying that you will be highly encouraged to know that Paul is just like we are, and yet he accomplished so much because of who God is. And I'm praying that as we go through this, you will discover the same, is that God knows our weaknesses and he knows we're weak. <laughs> he knows that we're full of fear. Is there anyone here that doesn't have some uncertainty in their life? You know? Is there anybody here who hasn't had some sort of anxiety or fear even this week about a family or your marriage or your kids or, or your job or, or something? We face these things on a daily basis. And so did Paul. And yet God used him in remarkable ways. And God is using you in the midst of all the things that are happening in your life. He's using you on this island in remarkable, astonishing ways. And I'm excited to be a part of it. But as we go through this text, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that you will be highly encouraged and blessed and also challenged. We find Paul beginning his missionary journey, at least in Corinth, uh, by coming into this city. It's a, a city in Greece. And I want to share a couple of facts about Corinth. It was 50 miles away from Athens on the west. And uh, so he made this journey. It wasn't that far, but that's a, that's a hike. And so he made the journey, and, and Corinth was on an isthmus. It's kind of like this natural land bridge uh, between the east and the west. And so as Paul was making this uh, journey to Corinth, he began to realize, and he already knew in advance, but he saw for himself that this was kind of a, a commercial mecca. It had two harbors. It was a very strategic place for, for commerce, but now Paul is looking at it as a strategic place for church planting and for ministry. But it was also a place that was notorious for its hedonism and sexual immorality. It was the home of the temple of uh, Aphrodite, uh, also known as Venus, the goddess of sexual love and perversion. And uh, this, this temple, by the way, was also one of the architectural wonders of the world at that time in, in Greece and Rome. The, the records tell us that there were actually about 10,000 priestesses that were a part of this temple worship of Aphrodite. And every evening in Corinth, this, uh, this temple was up on a hill behind the city. Every evening, thousands of these priestesses would come down into the city and, and uh, practice prostitution, not for money, but as a way of expressing their worship to Aphrodite. And so the city, every evening, imagine thousands of, of prostitutes, you know, coming down on a city. Imagine going into Kapa and suddenly from the hills somewhere, you know, you get thousands of prostitutes, not, not, you know, trying to make money, but simply trying to spread the gospel of love, sexual perversion. 
And that's what was happening in the city of Corinth. In fact, it was so bad, it was known as the cesspool of Rome. If you were called a Corinthian, uh, it wasn't a, a compliment. Some, you're, you're, you're like a Corinthian. It was a slanderous, harmful, derogatory comment to be called a Corinthian. That's how bad uh, the area of Corinth was. And the city, of course, was very successful commercially, and yet it was unraveling morally and ethically and spiritually, leaving in its wake destroyed, devastated, empty lives. And that's, of course, what, what sin does. It's pleasurable for a season, but in the end, the Bible tells us it brings death. Now, the first thing I want to point out as Paul enters this city is that he doesn't really have a plan. Um, I'm a real planner. You know, if I was to go into a city, I would want to have a complete plan. I'd want to have met people in advance and send letters in advance. And I'd want to have a network of people that we were kind of working together with so that when, when you know, I came, I, I wasn't just like starting with me, right? But Paul just goes in and he doesn't have a plan. Uh, his plan is simply to follow the leading of God and allow the Holy Spirit to guide him, divine appointments, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, and he fully expected that God would direct his life. But in the midst of this, he's, there's got to be some uncertainty in his life. Um, we, we went down at the invitation of Rob Snyder. Rob really loves doing evangelism. And he said, you got to come down to the mall on Friday, man. It's just packed with kids, you know? And I, he's going down there sharing the Lord. And so I said, okay, let's go. And I talked with my wife and she called some friends. And so a bun bunch of us went down there on Friday night and, and we were in the car and... Um, uh, we, got, we got down to the location, and, and one of the gals that was there as a, is a newer believer, and she said, what are we going to do, you know? Uh, how do we do this? And, and what's the plan? And I said, we don't have a plan. And, you know, her eyes got a little bit big. It's like, well, no plan? No, no, we're just going to pray right now, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us, and he's going to connect us with people, and he's going to help us make friends with people, and, and somehow he's going to arrange these conversations in such a way that his name is lifted up, and we are able to share the Lord with people and be a blessing down here. And so sure enough, about an hour and a half later, we gather back after we've gone out in teams and, and uh, share the Lord with people. And she's all excited and we're all excited. And it's like, we had so many conversations and she got so, this particular gal got so blessed, you know, because the Lord really used her. And she made friends with a bunch of high school girls and invited them to church. And I don't know if they're here today. Maybe you're here today. Uh, but, you know, she invited all these gals and they wanted to come and they were really blessed. And she came out of this just like, just so stoked. And the reason I share this with you is because sometimes we think about the Apostle Paul as a man with a plan. He did have a plan, but it was the over, overarching plan of sharing the gospel and making disciples. But all the details he left in God's hands. And he was willing to not know and still go in and still begin. And so I want to share with you right out of the gate here as we're starting this study is that God doesn't want you to know everything. He, he's given you the, the overall scheme picture. We know what it is. We're here for a reason. It's to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to make disciples of all nations. It's to teach what Jesus has taught us and to pass it on. And so that's our mission. But how it unfolds is something that the Holy Spirit wants to lead. And if you've never been led by the Holy Spirit in that way and, and, and that frightens you, I want to tell you it's the most exciting, the most wondrous, the most joy-filled life that you'll ever know when you finally get your hands off of the plan and then follow God and let Christ lead the way and you still go when you don't even know what's coming next. And that's what Paul does. And he goes into this city and lo and behold, he meets two people, Aquila and Priscilla, 
And the text tells us that they're Jews from Italy. They'd been chased out of Rome by Claudius. Um, there had been a lot of unrest in Rome in, in 49 AD. Claudius said, that's enough. The unrest was over the Jews starting riots because of the Christian testimony that was being shared all over Rome. And so they were inciting riots and trying to bring the Christians into disrepute with Rome, so much so that Claudius finally said, I've had it. I want all of you Jews out. And so all of the Jews in 49 were ejected from Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla and many other Jews found themselves exiled, basically, you know, having to find a new home and a new city. And this particular couple found themselves in the place of Corinth. Now, the Bible tells us that they were tent makers. And, uh, and again, here, here we go. Paul is going to have to provide for himself. He doesn't have any mission support. There's no home church there that, you know, he's drawing funds from. Nobody has invited him and, you know, paid all his bills to be there. So he has to go to work. Now, I know this sounds absolutely astonishing, but how did Paul know what to do for work? You know, maybe he got on his knees and said, oh God, what should I do to make a living? Well, no, he didn't do that because he was a tent maker. And so in a very natural way, he just simply went to work and provided for himself. And actually, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, 7 through 23, that though he had a right to receive help for doing the ministry, he sacrificed that right so that as he's leading people to Christ, it's not being misunderstood as his desire to build himself a little kingdom and to get money out of these new converts. So he said, I'm going to forego that right, and I am going to minister on my own dime. And he really became the, the forerunner of tent-making ministry. In fact, it's a, it's a missions term for anyone who is self-supporting in missions work and does ministry on the side in their free time. And so Paul is a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla. And that's how the connection is made, very naturally. Now, some of what we're going to see in this text is absolutely supernatural, but so much of ministry is also very natural, where God makes just natural connections. I don't need to pray about what type of work I'm supposed to do. God has called me. There's not necessarily a need for you to pray, gee, should I go to work today or not? You should probably go to work, you know? Um, if you need to provide for your family. There are a lot of things that we just don't need to necessarily pray about and cry out to God about. God, should I put clothes on today? Yeah, you don't need to pray about those kind of things. And so Paul just gets to work and he says, I know what to do. I'm not waiting for anybody to somehow drop money on me. Paul wasn't there. Oh, God, until I raise my full support, I'm not leaving. I'm not getting up until you, you give me all the money I need. So I can, no, he just gets out and he knows the call. He knows the mission and he gets busy. So he finds himself ministering and uh, staying with and working with Aquila and Priscilla. And of course, you can't stay with the Apostle Paul very long before you're either, um, you're beating him driving him out of town, or you become a Christian. And so Aquila and Priscilla have uh, chosen the third option, and they have become believers in Jesus Christ as Paul has simply been ministering with them. And I want to share something, just a little, a little gem uh, as we stop here for a moment and ob observe what, what's actually happening in this text, is that in the context of Paul's work, he's doing ministry. Such a simple little principle but I know people that feel like unless they're doing full-time vocational ministry, they're really not serving the Lord. And I want to, I for a moment, challenge your perspective on your work. Because I'll, I want to suggest to you that your work is not about an income for you primarily, from God's perspective. It's not primarily about 
your identity either. For a lot of men, it's, it's a, a huge part of work is our identity and our sense of belonging and our sense of accomplishment. And I would suggest to you that Christ wants your identity in him, not in your job. So it's not about money and it's not about identity. And I would suggest it's not even about status in the community. I would suggest to you that your work ordained by God from before you were even created, he knew what you would be skilled in, what you would gravitate toward, how he would orchestrate things in your life, very specifically as we talked about in, in Acts 17, 26 last week, so you would be in the exact time and in the exact place where God wanted you. Why? So that you would be an influence with a fingerprint of, of relationships that no one else ever will have, ever has had or ever will have. And he's placed you there strategically first and foremost, to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And so we find the Apostle Paul, you know, he's not, you see him grumbling? He's not, man, I can't believe I have to do tent-making ministry. I hate this. I can't wait until I get full support, you know? No, for him, it's just like it's another avenue for sharing the gospel of Christ. I want to challenge you, all of you, I want to challenge you to think differently and pray differently and live differently at work this week with that in mind that God has strategically placed and gifted you to share the word of God and the love of Christ with the people that are surrounding you. And so Paul, he, um, he's working all week and then the Bible tells us that on, on the Sabbath, which was the Saturday, that that would be the day that he would go into the temple and, and worship, but also the Bible tells us to reason with the Jews and also to try to persuade them. We talked about reasoning, dioligomai in the Greek, which means dialogue. It's where we get our English word dialogue from. And so he is not downloading all his information and running away. Uh, he's not lambasting the Jews. He's having a dialogue in the scriptures and he's talking them through the prophetic word of God, explaining that Jesus is the Messiah, the absolute fulfillment of all of God's promises. And we talked about that last week. I don't want to go on on that issue except to say that one of the most effective forms of evangelism is dialogue. Having a conversation, taking an interest in their belief, even if it's completely wrong, you know, um, but really caring about them and taking a genuine interest to explore and understand the issues of their life and to care for them because it gives you an open door for also communicating in return the things that God has shown you as well. And by God's grace, his word is planted in their hearts and has an effect. And so Paul is trying to persuade them to come to Christ. But he's doing this on a very part-time basis. Now, in verse 5, something changes because we find that, that, that uh, Timothy and Silas show up on the scene. Now, they're already two cities behind. Uh, they got left in Berea, remember? And then Paul went to Athens and says, hurry up and join me. Well, Paul was moving so fast, they, they missed Athens completely. And they catch him somewhere down the line in, in, uh, in Corinth. And finally, he's joined by these uh, partners, these co-laborers in ministry. And interestingly, it says because they came that Paul is now able to devote himself exclusively to teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question is, what made it possible? Did they, what were they doing? Did, were they working and he wasn't working? What was going on? Well, in the book of Philippians, we're actually told in chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, that the Philippian church sent a gift to Paul to Macedonia. And also, um, we know from first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9 that there was a gift from the church that was, that was coming from Macedonia. So from two sources, we have this gift coming from the church in Philippi. 
And it's being sent to Paul in Macedonia, and, but he was already off the scene and off and running, as he always is. And they had to like curry or catch up with Paul with the, with the dough. And so they bring this, this gift of money that enables Paul to not work. So Paul's whole purpose for working was evangelistic and simply to get enough money to buy enough bread and take care of his basic needs. But once he had the resources, it freed him up to do ministry full time. And he started preaching the gospel. And you remember with Saul, before he came to Christ, Paul, uh, he read the whole Bible. He knew the Old Testament very well, but his eyes were darkened. He couldn't see until the scales fell off on that Damascus road. And the Bible tells us that at that point, he was able to see and comprehend and understand. And now he read the Old Testament and he saw Jesus everywhere. <laughs> he saw the prophecies of Christ everywhere. And he began to proclaim that very powerful message in Corinth. But as often happened when Paul was preaching, he was opposed and verse 6 tells us that the Jews opposed him and became abusive. And this word abusive um, is blasphemeo, uh, blaspheming. And it's important to understand that word because the only thing that blasphemy involves is a man speaking ill about God in some fashion. It can't be direct. You can't blaspheme another person. You can slander another person, but you can't blaspheme another person. You can only blaspheme God. So these Jews were not blaspheming Paul. They were opposing him, but they were blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. They were so angry. And we talked about this last week, but this kind of behavior is always the defense when, logic, when a logical defense is absent. So they couldn't battle Paul on the scriptural grounds because Paul was just running circles around him and they couldn't answer any of his questions. And so they began to heap abuse on him and also to heap abuse on the name of Jesus Christ. And so finally, verse, the last part of verse six, the scripture tells us that Paul just got sick of it. And he said, that's it. And he does something that we don't do much in our, in our culture, and while well, we don't do it at all, but it says that he took his clothes and he just shook them out. You know, he's got these big ropes. It means to shake violently. You know, it's not like this. You know, he's not like, you know, Dustin Lintoff. I mean, the guy is just, he's just shaking his clothes and his robe and his tunic. And we're thinking, what is that about? Well, it goes back to Nehemiah, and it also goes back to the teaching of, of Jesus in Matthew 11, where the Bible tells us that Jesus said, when you go into a city and you preach the gospel and they reject it, just shake the dust off your feet. It's another form of the same thing. And, and really the interpretation of that is, I refuse to be even tainted by the dust of this place. I mean, you know, you're really, it's like, I'm done with you. Um, and secondly, I'm free from the guilt of this city's sin. And thirdly, I'm turning the city over to the judgment of God. So it's, um, don't, by the way, do this with like your spouse if you're having a fight or whatever. And like, you know, <laughs> turning you over to God, you know, snapping your clothes. Um, the context is very different here, okay? We're talking about people that are blaspheming God. It's not, it's not a spouse who uh, uh, wants to do something differently than you uh, that day. Um, and the second thing that he did that was kind of unusual is he said, I'm making you responsible for your own blood. Again, we're kind of a little bit lost on that. And, but Paul is very clearly talking to people who know the Old Testament, and he's referencing Ezekiel chapter tw uh, 2 and also chapter 22. In both cases, God speaks to Ezekiel, and he says, Ezekiel, you are my watchman on the wall for Israel. And he said, I am going to give you words to speak. So I'm calling you to speak to these people, and 
even if they don't listen, I want you to speak. If they respond to the message that I'm giving, him, uh, giving you to give them, then you will have carried out my will and that will be a blessing. However, if they do not listen to your message, but you followed through, their blood will be on their own head, but you will be free of guilt. However, Ezekiel, if I call you to speak to these people and you refuse to do it and they don't respond, you will be guilty of their blood. Whoa, man, this puts a whole new spin on evangelism. You know, a lot of times I'm thinking, and I'm not sharing this with you guys, I'm thinking to myself, okay, as I read this, I thought, when was the last time I really thought of it in these terms? Usually when I think about evangelism, I think, well, you know, it's, if, I, if I get to share today, praise God, I'm, I'm, I'm having an impact, God can use it, the, the person's life may be changed, and I'm going to be rewarded in heaven. But I, I rarely think to myself, when God puts a situation in front of me and calls me to say something and I, and I hedge, rarely does it come to my mind that I might be guilty of that person's blood if they don't respond because I have not spoken. So I'm not trying to put a trip on anybody else. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this myself. However, having said that, let me tell you a little trick I learned a long time ago to, to kind of adjust this whole thing, not to get out from the conviction, but to respond to it properly. Because as a younger Christian, when I would get convicted about something like this, because this is a biggie, you know, if I don't speak, I have a responsibility for this person's life. That's a heavy thing. And before, when I was a younger Christian and something like that would happen, I would feel, oh man, I just wilt under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'd feel kind of almost defeated until the Holy Spirit spoke to me one day and he said, Bob, you're not responding in a, in a positive way at all to this. I'm, I'm blessing you with this word. I'm wanting to elevate you with this word. Satan wants to take my word and crush you with it but I want to elevate you. Thank me for convicting you. Thank me for touching your heart in this area and then ask me for power to carry it out. And I started doing that and it was like when I got convicted, it completely changed the landscape of my relationship with God. And so I want to share with you when you're convicted about something is don't let it crush you because that's not God, that's Satan. But let the convicting work of God elevate you and transform you and then let him empower you to carry out the work that he's calling you to do. And so Paul says, I'm shaking my clothes and I am free of the responsibility of your blood before God. And then he turned his attention to the Gentiles, which Paul makes it a practice to do. He always went to the Jews first, Romans 1.16. But when they resisted and when they opposed it, he didn't hesitate at all to turn his attention to the Gentiles. I remember years ago, uh, inviting a, a, an evangelist to come over uh, to teach on personal evangelism. And um, his name is Eric Greeshopper. And one of the things that he taught, he, he actually teaches how to witness to Mormons and Jehovah's Witness. And very great teaching, just wonderful stuff. But one of the things that I'll never forget is he said, when you share the Lord, think of, uh, of the opportunity kind of like trying to get fruit off of a tree. When the tree is fully ripe, all you have to do is kind of shake the tree a little bit and then let it fall in your hands. But he said a lot of people, when they do evangelism, the tree is not ripe yet, the, the fruit is not ripe, and they shake and they shake, they won't move on. You know, it's just like they get that one tree and I'm gonna shake you until you drop fruit. I don't care, you know. You are dropping fruit, you know. And it's one of those situations where the person is like, I, the, the, that's being shaken, it's like, I hate Christians. You, you, you're driving me absolutely crazy. Will you stop with the verses and the light, late night phone calls? And, and you know, will you stop, you know? And, and you're just shaking and shaking and shaking. And, and what Paul is modeling for us here is just move on, you know? Shake, and if it doesn't drop, then move on. You can come back later in the season and another time 
when maybe the fruit will be ready. But don't keep shaking the same tree until green fruit drops off. You might actually spoil the harvest. And so Paul uh, so wisely moves on. He ends up going to Titius Justice's house. In the Greek, it tells us that in the, in the, um, in, in the language, it's clearer than it is in English. But his wall of his home shares a wall with the synagogue. <laughs> so right on the other side, Paul just goes right around the corner to the neighbor and he starts a Bible study there. And I'm sure it just dro drove the Jews absolutely crazy uh, that he was uh, camping right next door and having Bible study teaching these, these things about Jesus Christ. But in the midst of all of this, the Bible tells us in verse 8 that there was a response to Paul's message. And wonder of wonders, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's amazing. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that many Corinthians also believed and were baptized. And this word baptizo means to immerse, to fully submerge a person. And uh, because that's the clearest form of understanding the symbolism, which is a death to ourself and resurrection in Jesus Christ. And so it's a public profession of an outward, um, an outward profession of, of an inward work of, of God in our lives. Now, interesting. In order to really understand what's going to happen next, because Paul's about to receive a, a, a vision from God, and God doesn't give these visions very often. In fact, in the, in the text of Scripture, we only see about three or four that Paul has in his entire ministry. And so the question right away is, why is God giving Paul a vision? There's something important going on, and unless we fully understand what was happening in Paul's heart, we won't fully appreciate the value to him and to the ministry of this vision that he's about to receive. And what it requires me to do is to back up a little bit and talk to you about a pattern that Paul has developed in his ministry. And this is Paul's pattern. He goes into a city, goes into the synagogue, preaches the gospel, and I'm condensing this, preaches the gospel. Uh, some people respond, a very small number of Jews, and a lot of them get really hot and angry and hostile. And they try to cause a riot. They try to run him out of town or they try to kill him, one of those options. And so what happens next is that he turns to the Gentiles. And, and then the, the Jews get really angry and really upset because they are jealous seeing all of these Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God and things are just happening and they're kind of like standing still. And, and, it, and it makes them so upset uh, that they turn on Paul in very aggressive ways and then Paul's life is at stake, okay? That's already happened five times in, a, in the book of Acts. This is now number six. And when you have something happen six times in a row and it happens almost the same way every time, it starts to be something we call deja vu. And so Paul is starting to see this all happening. He says, wait a second, I've been here before. <laughs> and he's thinking, wait, you know, okay, I did what I did in Athens, I did what I did in Berea, I did what I did in Thessalonica, and he, and he starts going back. And now, based on his understanding and his experience thus far, he's preached the gospel to the Jews. They've rejected it. He's preached to the Gentiles, and they've received it. And now the Jews are becoming hostile. The next thing is being run out of town or beaten or imprisoned or put to death. That's the next step. And it's dawning on Paul in the, in the night, watches of the night. He was afraid. And we, we're going to discover that from the text because the Lord comes to him in the night and commanded Paul saying, verse 9, do not be afraid. You know that that phrase is mentioned 79 times in the Bible? 
Now, I had to go to seminary to, to, uh, to be trained in what that means when God mentions something that many times, especially when he says, do not fear. So I'm going to give you like a free semester of seminary right now. Okay, when God says something like, don't be afraid 79 times, it means that 79 times people were afraid. Okay? <laughs> I just saved you like $5,000. That's just one semester. So when God says something like that, he's not blowing smoke. It's not like he's just like, let, let, me, give, let me get out one of these bread of life little verses out of a little box and let's, oh, there you go. Do not be afraid. No, he's saying it because the person is terrified. They're struggling 79 times. You know what that means? There are, hardly, there are very few things that are said that many times in the Bible. We tend to be fearful. Paul was fearful and he was struggling with it. And so the Lord says to him, do not be afraid. And actually, I'm not trying to belabor the, the Greek, but in the present command form, it means Paul, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid, Paul. Why? Because he was afraid. Paul actually reveals his heart to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians 7 when he writes the church and he actually is very transparent and he tells them these things. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. This is the great apostle. When he wrote them his second letter, he said, when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. The great apostle. The word is phobeo, where we get our word phobia from. I mean, we're not talking about, gee, yeah, I got a little, I'm a little worried about that. No, I mean, we're talking about he was really, really afraid, genuinely concerned about what would happen to him. He suffers the same apprehensions and struggles that we have. And you know what? Here's a solution to it because he tells us actually in the book of, um, of Ephesians chapter six what the solution is to these kinds of fears. And so a little remedy for all of us is, is very simple. He says to the church in his closing uh, comments to Philippians, he says, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I mean, he really is telling us that he struggles with fear. He's not hidden this from us, but because of the powerful dimension and, and, and uh, aspects of his ministry, we somehow think that Paul is a cut above, but he tells us directly in Scripture that in ministry, he struggles with fear. That helps me so much. You know, even when we were driving down uh, uh, to go down uh, to the mall this weekend on Friday to share uh, Becky and I share the Lord a lot. We just constantly are talking to people and ministering to people, but it's a different thing when you're actually strategically going down to a place where you're not sure you know anybody or you are gonna, how the connections are gonna be made. And, uh, and we were kind of confiding in each other and said, you know, are you a little nervous? And she said, yeah, I am, I'm a little nervous. What are we gonna do? And I said, I don't know. We're just gonna pray and we're gonna seek the Lord and see what he does. And, uh, but we both had that apprehension. And the thing is, is that I've been a Christian a long time and I still at times am apprehensive when I share. Aren't you? 
Don't you have that moment where it's just like you're right up to the door, and I'm not talking about a physical door, but in a conversation, and you're right there, and the other person is reading a book, and they have no idea you're going through this, all this stuff on the inside about sharing with them, and you're like praying and crying out to God, and they're drinking their soda and eating their burger and reading a book or whatever. They're not worried at all, but you've got this little storm going on inside, and I want to tell you that's absolutely normal. You are right in there with all the rest of us, and the only thing that makes, uh, makes us different as Christians who are proclaiming the gospel is that we simply step beyond that fear and we put our trust in God and we speak because we are compelled to because of the love of Christ, because we know what's at, what's at stake and, and we know that this person's destiny, to some degree, God has positioned us in a way to bring about a transformation. And so we speak even though we're afraid. And so God says, not only don't be afraid, but he says, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Now, this is semester two of seminary. Now, when God says, keep on speaking and don't be silent, what he's trying to say is that Paul was tempted. You should be taking notes on this. Paul was tempted to quit. Okay? Just saved you another five grand. Man, you came, you came to church, 10 grand, you're ahead already. Okay? So this is pain. So God says, don't stop. Keep speaking. Why? Because Paul wanted to quit. Have you ever wanted to quit? I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to quit. There's something in us that Satan is just on our case constantly, and he says, quit. You know what he's saying to you? Quit your marriage. He's saying, quit your job. He's saying, quit trying so hard to follow Christ. He's saying, just do what you want. Give it up. Stop. Bag it all. Run away. I went, I went to Kalalao with the guys, and, and at the time I was thinking, I don't know how anybody could live back in here for like years, you know? And then I came home, and I was thinking, I want to go back to Kalalao, you know? <laughs> really. And I, and I still, every once in a while, I think to myself, I could do that. <laughs> I could, you know, I could live on a subsistence lifestyle back in there for a while. Because there's a part of us all that when we are in the thick of the work of God, every one of us wants to quit and cut and run. Every one of us. And Paul was no exception. And so God came to him in the night, and he says, Paul, don't quit. I've told you this before, but even in ministry, even here on Kauai, I just love ministry. I love serving. I love you guys. I love being your pastor. But there are times I just want, I just want, to, I want to run away. I really do. I get so loaded or so, not loaded. But I mean, I get so loaded. <laughs> That's another form of escape. Uh, not the one I'm talking about. But I get so loaded up with stuff that I'm just like, I'm at my limit. And I'm just thinking, I, gotta, I just want to run away. I want to run away from my family. I want to run away from the house and the kids and everything. All of us experience that. So you're not alone. And even the great apostle Paul wanted to run away. And God's word to him was, don't be silent. Keep on speaking. And I want to give you a word of encouragement today. Don't run away. God's got a great work for you. You will never fully appreciate what he has planned for your life unless you stay and hupomone. If you don't know what I'm talking about, never mind. Use, those of you that come here, you know what I'm talking about. But that ability to remain under the weight until God lifts it himself, not throwing it off yourself, but you staying and remaining until God lifts the weight, until God delivers, until God comes through. And when you live that kind of a life, only then will you see the glory and the power and the majesty of the King of Kings working in your life. 
And far too many people quit just as they get almost to the top of the hill and then they, you know, they slip down the hill again. And then and a year later, you know, they never make it over the top because they quit. I want to encourage you, don't quit. Don't quit your marriage. Don't quit your family. Don't quit this community. Don't quit your extended family. Don't quit your parents. Don't quit. Keep speaking. Don't be afraid. And then we find some very, very encouraging words from the Lord in verse 10. He commands them first and then he comforted them, comforted Paul by saying, I am with you. Those four simple words have to be some of the most wonderful, most comforting, most glorious words that the human ear can hear. I am with you. The Bible tells us that we have these promises over and over again. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you, the Lord declares. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. 18 through 20. What does the Lord say at the end of this commission? Surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. Have you ever felt alone? Okay. There are three of us. I saw a few heads. We feel like quitting. We're af we get afraid. We don't want to speak sometimes. And we feel alone. These are all things that... Why okay. Did I get to third semester seminary yet? Why would God say to Paul, I am with you? Because he felt alone. He, even though he knew God, even though he knew better, this cloud had come across him, this, this depression had sunk into his heart and he felt like he was all alone. And where are you, God? I can't go through this cycle anymore without your power. And so God says, Paul, I am with you. I wanna tell you something. If you are a Christian today, God is with you. God is with you. He hasn't left you. I know this sounds a little bit hokey, but I want you to do something with me. I want you to close your eyes just for a minute. And I want you to think about the things that you're stressed over, the things that are overwhelming to you, the things that you're uncertain about. And I want you to hear these words from the Lord just for a moment. I am with you. I, the Lord says, I am with you, with you. I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I love you. I care about you. I know what you're going through. I will see you through. I will bring you through to the other side. I will finish the work that I have begun in you. I will make you come home when that time comes. I will finish. I will accomplish. I am the Lord and I am with you. You can open your eyes. I was doing that to myself yesterday. I don't know, I did, must have gone on for like half an hour. I went for a little walk as I was preparing the message and I just, I was telling myself what God told Paul. Bob, I'm with you. And I was like, 
thank you, Lord. You know, I'm, thank you. And I was, I was trying to receive all that, but it was the silliest little thing, but it really built me up just proclaiming what God says, that he is with me. I'm not alone. I'm not alone now. I'm not alone yesterday. I'm not alone tomorrow. The Lord is with me, and he's with you. So God brings this very encouraging word, and he says, no one is going to attack you or harm you, which for Paul would have been an enormous relief because that was the next stage in the normal cycle for him. And he says, I have many people in this city. Now, this is a bit of a head-scratcher for me because Dr. Luke, writing the book of Acts, under normal circumstances, would have said, well, there was this wonderful little fellowship that Paul joined himself to in Corinth. But he doesn't say that. And if there were Christians there in Corinth, undoubtedly Paul would have joined himself to them and he would, would have partnered with them in ministry. But the text doesn't say that. Now, it could be that there were really people after the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem that actually went to Corinth and preached the gospel and they were little cells here and there that Paul didn't know about. But I want to suggest to you another possible uh, interpretation that maybe what God is saying here is not descriptive but predictive. Maybe he's not saying there are people here that are, are followers that are on fire. Maybe he's saying that there are people here who I am calling who you need to speak to so that they can come in and be a part of this kingdom work I'm doing. Paul, you have to keep speaking because people are waiting to come in. And as I thought about that, I thought, wow, Kauai is full of the people of God. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> and the Lord is going to use our church and other churches that are proclaiming the gospel to communicate this wonderful life-transforming message that Jesus can save people, that Jesus can change lives, that Jesus can forgive, and that Jesus, by his work on the cross, can reconcile a broken relationship between a human and their God. And that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I have many people in this city. And so the response of Paul is wonderful. He just stays. I love this. Just hearing the word, he makes a decision. That's all I need to hear. I don't need to see any circumstances change. You know that the Jews were still opposing him. You know that they were still on his case. But Paul, hearing that word, don't be afraid, Paul. Keep speaking. I am with you. And I have many people in this city that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says he stayed for a year and a half. It goes on to say that he taught the word of God to the Corinthians. This is what he did for a year and a half. Just simply teaching the word of God, simply. Pastor Chuck's favorite line, simply teaching the word of God, simply. What does that involve? Probably the best uh, text in scripture I know of for what it means to teach the Bible is found in the book of Nehemiah. And in that chapter eight, verse seven, it says what Nehemiah did to bring the people back into an understanding of who God was. He trained the Levites and then he instructed them to instruct the people in the law. And so the Levites went from town to town and they read from the book of the law of God. So they read it and then they made it clear, in other words, interpreting it, and then giving its meaning and its application uh, so that the people could understand what was being read. So it's just basically observation, interpretation, application, the things that we all know. And that's what the Levites did. And this is what Paul did for a year and a half, and it transformed Corinth. Now, if you look at the book of Corinthians, you can see why they had so many problems with sexual immorality. They were coming out of a cesspool of sexual perversion. But God was going to change this, this city for the glory of God. But it happened because one man who was fraught with the same challenges, the same difficulties, the same inadequacies that we have, chose to trust God. God met him in a vision in the night and said, Paul, 
Do not be afraid. I am with you. And he's giving us that same message today. There's a little bit more of the story, but because of time, I'm going to stop. But I want to encourage you that the Lord is in our midst, even when we feel alone, even when we can't see answered prayer, even when we don't know what's coming next, even when we're dealing with uncertainty, he's given us a mission, he's given us a call, and he says, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, I am with you. In fact, more than that, God says, surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. What an encouraging word to see the weakness of Paul and be encouraged. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it just, it just lifts my soul to know he had problems. <laughs> but it builds me up because I realize that he's made of the same stuff I am. And if God can use Paul, then he can use me. If he can use Paul, he can use you. And now the question is, what does he want? We need to call out to him. We know the big picture. It's to preach the gospel. It's to share our faith. It's to make disciples. But how it unfolds is a very particular and peculiar and unique work in your life. And that, my friends, is one of the major things that draws us into intimacy with God is the desire to know and to be used and to work and to co-labor with the King of Kings. And he's calling me and he's calling you and he's calling us to that work in this day, these final days that we're living here on this beautiful island of Kauai. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, I pray that it would find its way in our hearts and that we would be lifted up, God, by not only the struggles that Paul faced, but also his overcoming victory, his overcoming all of these fears, his desire to stop speaking, his desire to protect himself physically from harm, his desire to be liked, his, his need, like all of us, to be wanted and appreciated. Certainly, he thought to himself on occasion, isn't there another job that I could take in serving you, Lord, where people will like me? And friends will remain with me. But God, you had a calling on him and you have a calling on us. And the fear of man is a snare, but those who trust in the Lord will be kept safe. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen.